Today's episode is brought to you by Overcast, an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls. Just a great podcast app for everyone. Get it for free in the App Store. Overcast. Good evening and welcome back to my backyard. Evening's got a different sound to it than morning. I can hear the traffic in the distance. There's a dog barking somewhere. I've usually got these frogs that croak in the trees behind me, but I guess the weather must not be right for that right now. Evening time, of course, is different than morning. I feel like you know, the whole day is behind me, and now I'm kind of tired. And honestly, that might be kind of reflective for how quarantine's going for me lately. At sometime about two weeks ago, I feel like I just hit this, like, kind of a wall inside of me. Not like anything broke or anything, but... Just something with the reality that this is obviously real, but, you know, like, this is this is what we're doing, and this is probably what we're going to continue to do for at least the foreseeable future. I'm, I'm not overly optimistic about June compared to May, but who knows what the future holds. I live in Perry County, where we haven't had too, too many cases uh, compared to other counties around us. Jackson and Randolph have had considerably more I think about my grandma who lives over in Randolph County, and she is 92 years old. Uh, She has effectively been on lockdown in her assisted living facility for, oh gosh, the last six weeks now. Not allowed to leave her room, meals brought to her. Um, My mom will go over and visit her and stand outside the window and call her on the phone just for some bit of human connection there. But of course, she is in the population that's at the highest risk of COVID-19 infection. If she should get it, it'd be really bad. Together Apart is our theme again, and I have to admit I'm feeling a little bit more worried than I was two weeks ago. My friends, and especially my family, have been helping me get through these days, but I tell you what, it's just been, it's just been different on my mental landscape. Um, the number of cases going up, you know, the number of deaths and, and all that, the reality of it, and now, of course, the inevitable infighting over, is this real, should we be quarantined or not, and, you know, Trust me, people, listen to your medical professionals, listen to your health experts. Yes, quarantine should go on. It is the right thing to do. Protect those around you, especially protect the elderly. That is the point. So what do we do here? Try our best to ignore what's going on. Obviously, that's impossible. But it is our responsibility to take this seriously. We have to work to parse facts from what we want to hear. Norway practiced lockdown while Sweden did not, and Sweden's death rate from COVID-19 was three times higher than that of Norway. This works. What we're doing right now, this quarantine, is worth doing. I often find myself uh, telling people that at the end of the day, we still don't know what will happen, that there isn't enough data, but I do tell them, plan to keep doing what we're doing right now. In the meantime, some of our state parks have opened back up. Down here I see that Tunnel Hill, Fern Cliff, and Giant City have all reopened. If you need to get out of the house, and I fully get that feeling, I don't think I could recommend a better and safer outlet than an easy hike. My personal recommendation in our area is the Giant City Nature Trail. Man, that thing is just awesome. And you can go now. Take the kids. Just remember your social distancing. I am dreaming of July and doing another live show with you all. That may be inappropriate, and I may be setting myself up for a letdown, but I feel like I've got to hope in something, you know? I'm honestly drawn to the quote from the Shawshank Redemption. 
Hope is a good thing, maybe the best thing, and no good thing ever dies. You people are all doing good work out there. Keep it up. We need you all. Grow your gardens, bake your bread. Raise your kids. Love somebody. Our first musical number is from Mr. Kyle Triplett, a musical polymath, wonderful human, and a pretty great friend. I asked Kyle if he'd be able to contribute something remotely for the show, and he came up with, well, well, this that you're about to hear. I just, this guy blows me away. I also want to say Kyle has been contributing to the Carbondale Closed Mic Nights, uh, which you can find them on their Facebook page. Essentially, it's uh, local musicians who are all contributing their time and efforts uh, to raise money for local charitable uh, organizations, food pantries, women's shelters, uh, things of that nature. And I applaud their efforts, and it is wonderful to see good people working towards good causes, even in stressful times like these. We should all put our efforts somewhere good. The time has come to say goodbye. I'm asking Please don't cry The time to me won't be so long To know you're happy back at home Someday we'll meet again, sweetheart We'll meet and never more depart Someday we'll meet again, sweetheart Don't cry so please don't break my heart So goodbye now darling don't be blue And be true And remember darling what I say Sweetheart we'll meet again someday Someday we'll meet again sweetheart We'll meet and never more depart Someday we'll meet again sweetheart Don't cry so please don't break my heart
first storyteller for this half is Miss Summer Slevin. Summer sent me this bio that I'm going to read. Quote, Once a digital nomad living in a built-over van traveling the United States National Parks, Summer now calls Bozeman, Montana her home. She and her pup live in a log cabin and enjoy cozy days with a good book. If she's not reading, working, or playing with her pup, she's probably hiking, meditating, or talking with her family. Summer is head of operations for Acoustic Life, which teaches people how to commit to a daily guitar practice. Man, I should look her up for this. Her friends describe her as insatiably curious, unendingly silly, and wholeheartedly passionate. Her goal in life is to make as many new friends as humanly possible and to leave the world a little brighter than she found it. You can follow her adventures on Instagram at SumSlev. I wake up on Easter, and for a moment, I don't remember anything. I don't remember that it's a holiday, that there's a global pandemic taking thousands of lives a day, or that I'm alone in a log cabin in Montana. As each realization trickles into my mind, I feel my desire to get out of bed gradually decrease. But I actually have big plans for the day, all things considered. Our traditional Slevin family egg roll is today. Before I moved from Illinois last year, I attended almost every single annual egg roll. Usually, we all hard-boiled and decorated our eggs. Then, we go over to my great-uncle's house to roll our eggs against each other. We sit on the floor of the living room, across from our opponent, shake hands, and then roll our hard-boiled egg against theirs. If they make contact, there's almost always a cracked egg. The uncracked one moves on to the next round. It is a tradition that's been going on in our family for the better part of a century. We have everything, from a roster to say who you roll against each round, to a trophy that's been passed down and engraved each year. But I knew that this year was going to be different, as everyone had been ordered to stay indoors and not gather with others. How could we possibly have our egg roll when we were all socially distancing? I climb out of bed and dress up for Easter. I make my coffee and walk over to my computer. I open my video chat and click on the link my cousin had sent me the night before. Suddenly it loads and I am face to face with cousins from all over the country, some I'd never even met before. One by one my relatives hop on, each one excitedly saying their hellos to relatives they hadn't seen in years. At first it's chaos, noisy and hilarious, kids screaming and people talking over each other. But gradually, everyone calms and just excitedly waves to each new participant hopping on. And people use the chat feature to comment to one another. Some people hold up notes to their cameras, and one couple even uses the opportunity to announce the sex of their unborn child to the family. After 30 minutes pass, we have two full screens of participants, over 70 people joining from Hawaii to Maine and most states in between. It's the largest turnout we've ever had. We'd been asked to send our headshots to my cousin, and I'd sent a silly one in from a former egg roll. One participant moves their camera and suddenly, dozens of faces come into view, 73 photos of our faces, all mounted on popsicle sticks. We all laugh and comment on the various funny faces and remark about how handsome our family is. And now, the Slevin family egg roll begins. The first names are called, and two of my cousins dressed in nurse attire pose as surrogate rollers and hold up one hard boiled egg in one hand and a photo of a roller in the other. They put down their eggs to shake hands. Then, they roll against each other. The first two tries, the eggs don't even make contact. But on the third, whack, both eggs are checked for cracks. One person is out, the other moves on. And so it goes. 
One of my cousins is the commentator, announcing the winners and who is on deck. The rest of my family comments on the rollers. They trash talk and they hoot and holler for joy when they move on to the next round. Everyone is laughing, and some are even shedding happy tears. In the end, I don't win. Honestly, I don't even make it past the first round. But when the call ends a couple hours later, my cheeks hurt from smiling so much. Suddenly, my world feels closer to others than ever before. My family feels like it has grown, and I can't find a single lonely bone in my body. Our next storyteller is Isaac Smith, who is a rural journalist hailing from Randolph County. Not that there are any other kinds of journalists hailing from Randolph County. He enjoys spending time with his family and learning new skills. Ask him about his bread sometime if you run into him. You'll learn a lot. I've been trying to wrap my head around the death of John Prine since I got the news. I'm going to do my best to unpack it here, but I'm afraid it's going to fall short. Still, I'm inclined to try. Our theme will help guide us. At least maybe. Together apart. There's a lot to this within John's music. But at this time and in this place we are in, I'm going to look at this through a slightly different lens. Finding company with the characters in these songs. Company that can help us digest the world we're living in, connected and yet apart from nearly everyone in our lives. So much of his music is about mourning and acceptance, and so often resignation. In this time of absolute uncertainty that we live in, it's hard to actually process either of these things in our daily lives. But with lines like, How are you going to get sunshine peeking through Venetian blinds? We can dig deep to try and settle the unsettled. Or, at the very least, Take a moment that's for ourselves. More than any person I've ever heard, John Prine wrote songs that cut directly to the meat of his subjects. The startling clarity of his words paint, in the highest resolution, portraits of our neighbors, of our aunts. What makes these songs remarkable isn't their highs, it's their lows, their small moments. John wrote as if he'd been listening when people thought they were alone. There's flies in the kitchen. I can hear them there buzzing. And I ain't done nothing since I woke up today. How the hell can a person go to work in the morning and come home in the evening and have nothing to say? The first time I heard this lyric from John's Angel from Montgomery, I was absolutely stunned. He had, in one verse, summed up something I had been trying for years to put my finger on. As a journalist... There's a type of person I'm drawn to, and he had described them. I'd been trying for years to explain this person succinctly to talk about the work that I find important. His songs examine the small lives we all live, focusing often on the forgotten corners of our world. His reflections on the unique brand of American loneliness are illuminating. This is one of the things that I think makes Angel from Montgomery so special. We all know the cowboy from the poster John sings about, and we know that cowboy's angel, too. His first album is one I could write a book about. This is the example of John's brilliance that most people go to. His other records, particularly the one released just before his death, have the same luminance, though. That said, despite feeling like it's all too often the go-to answer, John's debut album earns every bit of those accolades. It stands apart to me from other folk albums of the time, 
because it stripped away the veneer of the ideal progressive lifestyle of protest and progress. Instead, it pointed out just how sad and vulnerable life at that time actually was. The songs laid bare the insecurities of the generation in a way that I've not heard before. It's hard to succinctly talk about John Prine and his songs, at, at least for me. His words and stories burrowed into my brain in a way few have, and so they inhabit nearly every part of my life. What I can say is that John Prine was the greatest American songwriter of our time, if not for all time. From the bottom of my heart, I am so thankful for him and the life he lived and the songs he shared. John, I hope to see you sometime in the future. Maybe you'll let me sit in at the Tree of Forgiveness. But I hope St. Peter had that nine-mile cigarette rolled and ready for you. You earned it. Up next, batting for the Southern Illinois home team, is Claire Hughes. Claire spends her day job as a marketing developer for a local medical organization, but she says she'd prefer to be known for her hobby as a purveyor of fine internet memory, or internet meme historian. Of course, what I'm trying to say is that she is a shit poster, but honestly, if you need a laugh and you're endless scrolling the internet, don't you really rely on your friends who kind of overshare the good things they find with you? I ask you. Claire considers herself a nerd, an audiophile, women's health advocate, and somebody's mom. I'm going to share the single most useful advice my father gave me. Betty Claire, he said, when you can't look them in the eye, look them in the nose. They'll never be able to tell. As a lifelong member of the painfully shy club, this advice given to me at the age of five has gotten me through more situations than I can count. Beyond being practical advice, this moment forged a new connection between me and my dad. For the first time that I can recall, somebody finally accepted the fact that my shyness was a huge barrier for me, one that caused great discomfort and fear. While recollections of my early childhood are scarce, the ones that became core memories are overwhelmingly comprised of people demanding I look them in the eye. Even to this day, with years of therapy and self-awareness under my belt, I still struggle. My father was full of good advice. He was a wise man, constantly learning and observing the world around him from the confines of his electric wheelchair. He'd come home from Vietnam, his body weakened from the onset of multiple sclerosis, a changed man. While nobody knows for sure what causes MS, his army career was cut short by a disease that some think could have been brought on by exposure to certain chemical defoliants in the jungles of Southeast Asia. As he lost the use of his arms and legs over time, Dad found compensation through education, discussion, and philosophy. The house was always filled with books, floor to ceiling and in every corner. He was always buried in volumes of something, often reading aloud to us in order to spark deep discussion and moments of critical thinking. For a man with limited mobility, he lived a full life. He was a stay-at-home dad to two daughters and a doting and loving husband. He played chess with strangers and attended meetings at City Hall. 
He made political plans and worked with candidates whose goals of greener policy and less military influence aligned with his own. He drove us to dance lessons and music lessons. He watched our soccer games from inside his mobility-adapted minivan. People came and went from our tiny house daily. Living in a college town meant there were always plenty of people eager to debate and discuss theories and philosophies and politics. He took up teaching English to Asian students from our kitchen table. And every semester, there'd be a new group of students practicing their English with us and bringing us treats from corners of the world we only knew from school and TV. He must have helped dozens of foreign students over the course of my childhood. I later learned this stemmed from his time spent in Asia and his attempts to become a military translator before his discharge. A far cry from the eager enlistee seeking the dignity and respect he perceived he'd find being a soldier, he became a scholar and a teacher. As I look back on how many lives he touched in the second chapter of his life, I wonder if he ever realized that he did, in fact, achieve dignity and respect. I'm grateful for each of the 29 years I had with my father, especially since we never knew when the disease would rob him of his strength or take his life. His final years make up most of the worst moments of my life. As his strength diminished, he became more susceptible to illness and every illness would leave him weakened, unable to return to where he was before. I held his hand in countless hospital rooms, watching as his tomb of a body clung to life. I told him he was going to be a grandpa one day in early September, as he lay sleeping, unable to wake from all the drugs and tubes and procedures. He would later tell me in a rare moment of health and alertness, he heard those words and they made him happy. Life continued for several more years just like that, in and out of hospitals fighting round after round of pneumonia and infection until the day my mother said the worst thing I'd ever heard. He's beyond the point of recovery. On a cold, dreary day in late December, the main hall of the synagogue overflowed with people. We should all be so loved to have our funeral be standing room only, I thought, as I stood at the front of the room, greeting mourners and well-wishers. He was a great man, they'd say, each coming forward one by one to extend hugs, handshakes, and condolences. He changed my life. As a painfully shy adult, one of the hardest things I've ever had to do was stand before that audience as person after person came up to talk to me. Compounded by grief and sadness, the simple act of engaging each person in conversation, albeit brief, became nearly unbearable. I sought the fortitude to remain composed in my place. As I stood there wondering how I was going to glance into the next set of well-wishing eyes, those words of advice that he had given me so many years ago, that trusted advice that had carried me through countless encounters and interviews, echoed in my head. Betty Claire, look him in the nose.
Our final storyteller for this episode is returner Felicia Dieguez. For those of you who may recall, Felicia joined us for our October 2019 show, South, and she was kind enough to submit her piece for our theme this go-around. Felicia is an English teacher at Morton High School in Hammond, Indiana, near Chicago. She is a wonderful person who pours herself out in her work and genuinely cares about her students. Take it away, Felicia. The very day I moved into my own apartment to live alone for the first time in my life at age 32, the country seemed to come down around everyone's ears, in front of everyone's eyes, and all around our brains and bodies. The seven months beforehand would prove to be my first lesson in loneliness. I had only a passing, very vague notion of loneliness. I romanticized it even, without ever actually feeling it. I read too many Victorian novels as a child. I come from a large family. I am the second oldest of six children, the youngest of whom was born when I was 18. With that many siblings, loneliness is damn near impossible. But don't imagine misery or screaming at younger siblings to leave my room. We fought, sure, but pretty mildly and not very often. My family and I have always had an intense bond. It is a connection that is intimidating to an outsider if that outsider is not the right kind of person. And most are not. In July of 2019, I left my husband. We had been together for 10 years, so I was only 21 when we got together. It was, of course, a difficult separation, but I was thankful to have my mom's house as a landing pad. I lived there for the rest of that year and the beginning of 2020, gaining my bearings, getting things in order, and generally healing. Convalescing, as they say in my Victorian novels. But this is when I first learned about loneliness. Real loneliness. For most of our marriage, my partner and I shared a great love. I moved in with him seven months into our relationship, and it would be eight years after that before we spent our first night away from each other. When we separated, even though it was my decision and I knew it was the right decision, I felt like I had lost a limb. I felt like I was missing that extra stair step. All those cliche phrases to describe something that's not there. I learned the loneliness that is an ache deep in the marrow of your bones. I learned the loneliness that is relearning how to sleep alone and waking up and forgetting just for a second why you are alone. The kind of loneliness that feels like the tears are being pulled from inside of your chest. Of learning how to be a whole by yourself instead of one half of a whole. But I had my family. When I moved back home, I lived with my mom and stepdad and three of my younger siblings. So while I was lonely, I wasn't alone. I was just lonely for a certain type of person, a companion. And everyone in my family propped me up. They all held my hand and helped me to the finish line. Anywhere I looked, there was a shoulder for me to cry on. There was a helping hand. There was somebody ready with a joke to distract me from feeling sad. In the eight months I lived at home, I became much closer to them. I moved into my apartment on Friday, March 13th. I'm a high school teacher, and if I had known that that would be the last day of the school year, I would never have taken a personal day to move. My family helped me move, we had dinner together, and then it seemed everything shut down. I got the email the afternoon of my moving day that my school was closing for the next three weeks, which of course would eventually turn into closing for the remainder of the school year. 
So what happened to me was that I went from never living alone in the three plus decades of my life and just having lived in a busy house with a big family and having a job in which I saw 170-ish students a day to seeing no one a day. And also on a larger scale, I had gone from being married and expecting to have been a mother to being single and childless in my 30s. But it was okay. I loved my little studio apartment. I loved making things mine. I'm introverted. I like being alone. At that point, I could still go see my family and the new puppy they adopted. Then, after a couple of weeks, I got sick. For two or three days, I thought it was allergies. Then the cough got too bad and the breathing difficulties too worrisome, and then the fever came. I spoke to my doctor on the phone, and she said because of the test shortages, I should just stay home and monitor my symptoms. And if they got worse, then I should come in. Or if I have a very hard time breathing, go to the ER. And then I could no longer go see my family. I could no longer go anywhere. I held it together for a while. I thought, fine, I have Netflix. Pretty much anything can be delivered these days. How bad can this be? Then later that day, I saw a commercial for Facebook about staying connected with loved ones through technology. And there was this beautiful spoken word poem in the background and the floodgates. They opened. I couldn't come to terms with the fact that I wouldn't be able to see or hug my mom or my siblings for an indeterminate amount of time. I felt that loneliness in my bones again. Serendipitously, about a minute into my crying, a friend of mine texted me a message asking how I was. We we're close enough that I didn't feel the need to hold to the Midwestern pleasantry of saying I am good when I'm not. I told him I was not good that I was sad and missing my family and crying. And so this fairly camera-shy friend of mine FaceTimed me while he was cooking dinner, just to cheer me up and show me that I was not alone. And that brought the point home to me. I wasn't alone. In the days and weeks that followed, my family and friends showed me not just how much they cared about me, but we showed how much we all cared about each other. My sister worked at, at that time, an essential customer service job, and so does her live-in boyfriend still, so she's not comfortable being around the family. So, our tight-knit family, we had to figure out other ways to be together. Part of this is, as that Facebook commercial said about technology. We FaceTime, we have Google Hangouts, we have a shared family journal Google Doc that my sisters and I update daily and my mom. But there are other non-technology ways, closer human ways. We discovered that because my apartment is half underground, my windows are more or less at eye level and my kitchen window screen can be removed. My sister came by one day, she lives only a 10 minute walk away, and she sat outside on the pavement. I poured us cocktails, yes, I washed my hands, and we chatted at a safe distance. That kitchen window became my saving grace. While I was sick, my mom came by with lunch a few times. Both of my sisters have come by to chat. If you had told me a year ago that I would be so happy to talk to someone through a window, I would have concluded I was going to prison. It's funny the things that keep me afloat now. I'm not sick anymore, so I can see my family from time to time, because I don't go anywhere except there. That friend from earlier who cheered me up, we watched trash reality TV and live text, thinking our lucky stars are lives, or at least not like that. The other day, I messaged my college best friend, and we had a long conversation. We hadn't spoken in a long time, and it felt like a balm to my soul to catch up. 
And all I could think is that this experience has already fundamentally changed me. It's made me appreciate more the people I love and the people I have loved. And it's made me want to love people even more and bring them closer, even if only emotionally. like you always do tell the blue skies drive the dark clouds far away so won't you please say hello to the folks that I know tell them I won't be long they'll be happy to know that as you saw me go I was singing this song sunny day We'll meet again Don't know where Don't know when But I know we'll meet again Some sunny day Keep smiling through Just like you always do Tell the blue skies, drive the dark clouds far away. And so won't you please say hello to the folks that I know. Tell them I won't be long. They'll be happy to know that as you saw me go, I was singing this song. We'll meet again. Don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. This podcast has been produced in association with the Nerdalogs. To find out more about the Nerdalogs and their shows, visit www.nerdalogs.com or facebook.com slash nerdalogs. Thanks for listening.